Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here it is again. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Welcome back. Long ago, in the 1300s in Paris, lived a man named Nicholas Flamel. His life is one of the best documented in history as evidence of alchemy. Now, alchemy is the pursuit of turning lesser metals into gold. And Nicholas began his life as a normal bookbinder and scribe, always comfortable but never rich. That is, until one day he became helly rich. See, Nicholas was interested in alchemy, and he'd spent a lot of his life searching for rare alchemical books to no avail. Then, one day, a stranger approached him with a rare manuscript, and Flamel recognized it because not long before he had dreamed about an angel and the angel had appeared holding this specific book telling him one day you will see in it that which no man will be able to see and the stranger had this book now i imagine you know nicholas trying to be a good businessman trying to negotiate you know keep his cool yeah whatever man like I don't really want your piece of shit book, but um, I get, I, I'll give you a belt and a chicken for that book. And you know the, the former owner of the book looks up at him sadly, unaware of the treasure he holds and accepts, walking away with tighter pants and a chicken. All the while, Flamel knows that this book is the secret. From then on, he devoted his life to translating this book of power. After a couple years, uh, he became kind of like that shitty Italian restaurant with, you know, with like five tables, but the owner has, you know, like 10 girlfriends and three Lamborghinis, and you're like, but, but no one ever goes to your restaurant, dude. How are you so rich? And then you just remember he's in the mafia. Flamel became fucking loaded with no explanation. And many people then and now think he succeeded at the two goals of alchemy. That he made the Philosopher's Stone, which turns base metals into gold. And that he achieved immortality through the elixir of life. Because there were sightings of Flamel years after his death. And Isaac Newton himself was interested in decoding Flamel's secrets. But we all know that alchemy isn't real, right? I mean, alchemy is just some bumblefuck horse scrabbling bullshit, right? But what if... Inside all of us, there was something as powerful as the Philosopher's Stone, able to provide any of us with almost anything we desired. But instead of turning lead into gold, we were able to turn practice into mastery. Like Neo in the Matrix downloading martial arts, like Vegeta and Trunks training in the hyperbolic time chamber emerging as golden-haired gods to send Cell back to the underworld. What if there was a secret to learning that most of the world spits on 
and disregards. A secret that one in possession of would be able to apply to anything and everything. And that, priests, is what we have in store today. Our author, Robert Greene, has honestly figured out alchemy, the elixir of life. And I am not exaggerating here. He has dragged his raccoon-sized testicles through the pages of this book, and he is here to teach us the way. Now, the quick summary about Robert Greene is Robert Greene's a fucking man. The slightly longer summary is uh, he's a very successful author. Um, I first came into contact with Mr. Greene when I read his most famous book, The 48 Laws of Power. And um, it's kind of a slightly fucked up book. Pretty good, though. It's, it's you know, it's kind of like the uh, Machiavellian sociopath's instruction manual to, you know, to manipulate everyone around you for fun, profit, and, you know, achieving that tingly feeling in your peeper. But um, it's developed a cult following, you know, entrepreneurs, people getting after it, uh, rappers. It was so successful that rappers like Jay-Z, 50 Cent, Kanye, and our boy Gucci Mane cited in rap lyrics and carried around like some sort of macabre Girl Scouts handbook. And Robert Greene, um, he can speak five languages. He's a student of Zen Buddhism. He can swim. He's been on the Joe Rogan experience. Uh, he suffered a stroke a while ago and uh, on the internet, apparently his hand and leg are still kind of fucked up and his website hasn't been updated since 2018 because he doesn't give a fuck. But his specific book that we're covering today is his book called Mastery. Because when he was trying to make it as an author, you know, Green, he, uh, Mr. Green worked 80 jobs, he said. Um, you know, he got exposure to a vast variety of industries. And then he got success. He wrote The 48 Laws of Power, a couple other smash hits, The Art of Seduction, The 33 Strategies of War. And the way he writes these is he kind of outlines a principle. Then he, he goes and does this like damn exhaustive historical analysis to pull out examples from the past. And when he was doing that in his other books, he started to see a pattern. You know, he would come across people who were giants of their field. And he actually first saw this in his just day-to-day -day life in his 80 different jobs that he had. You know, master carpenters, masters of business, courtesans. And then he kept seeing it as he studied all of these historical figures, demigods, savages, the best of the best, and then the best of those. And at first he thought, you know, each person must be different. Like a, a master carpenter, genius CEO, and, and famous composer from 1600, it couldn't all be the same, right? But as he went deeper and deeper, he started to see universal principles of how people become masters. Just like there are a hundred different martial arts, but only a couple ways to throw a punch, he started to see the fucking way. So he set out to study the process of mastery. How to go from bitch to beast, from tiny little pussy to hulking fucking monster. And are there any principles that knuckle dragon baboons like us could take and apply to our lives? Now, I told a little bit about it on the first podcast, but um, the book, The Talent Code, actually changed my life. And go listen to the first episode uh, of this whole damn series 
um, if, if you want to learn more about that book. But um, basically, the quick 80-20 is like anything can be learned through practice. And uh, after I realized that, I, you know, I was like, oh, my God, all these things that I was bad at. I'm not an idiot. I'm just lazy. So I started buying every book about the learning process and trying to teach myself the way. Um, you know, first, back in that day, with the goal of you know being the greatest fighter that the earth had ever known. And you know, I know it's it's important to set very realistic goals. So that was a very realistic goal I had. But then after I hurt my back and again had to give up all semblance of being a man, I had to figure out like what the fuck am I gonna do with my damn life? Cause you know, I can't I can't fight people or join the military. So like, god damn it, I guess I'm gonna like be loosely described as a fucking adult. I remember when I first read this book, I had just hurt my back. Um, you know, I was laying on the floor in Colorado, just just horrible pain. Uh, a couple days later, I got sexually harassed by a chiropractor. She kissed my head and called me child. But this book starts where the talent code left off. So we start by accepting the assumption that anything can be learned through practice. Okay. We're there. If you're not there, go listen to the Talent Code or the Genius Explained episode. But then this book takes that and evolves that idea into a roadmap. Now, little disclaimer here. It's another fucking tome. I mean, like I almost died after covering Anti-Fragile and the Black Swan. Um, this book is 70% as hardcore. Um, so, you know, if, if it's too hard for you, just, just quit now and... You know, go listen to some cooking episodes. But um, as Greg Plitz said, second by second, we lose the opportunity to become the person we want to be. When are you going to step up and take charge of your fucking life? So it's going to be hard. We're all probably going to throw up at some point during this episode. But if we can make it through the end, the clouds will disappear, the sea will part, and our chariot of gold will await us, ready to escort us onto a hunt of the world's most dangerous game. Because this book, is the treasure map to the dragon smog's lair. Some of us may die. Some of us may still be alive and actually get eaten. But those of us who survive will be reborn, cast in gold, ready to conquer anything we put our dicks and minds to. Into the book, the ultimate power. Everyone holds his fortune in his own hands. Like a sculptor, the raw material he will fashion into a figure. But it's the same with that type of artistic activation as with all others. We are merely born with the capability to do it. The skill to mold the material into what we want must be learned and attentively cultivated. Goethe. I think he's an author. I don't know. He's famous and old. Mr. Green says, There exists a form of power and intelligence that represents the high point of human potential. It is the source of of the greatest achievements and discoveries in history. It is an intelligence that is not taught in our schools nor analyzed by professors, but almost all of us at some point have had glimpses of it. It often comes to us in a period of tension, facing a deadline, the urgent need to solve a problem, a crisis, or it can come from constant work on a project. Our minds are completely absorbed. We might normally experience life in a passive mode, constantly reacting to this or that incident, but for these days or weeks, we feel like we can determine events and make things happen. 
The problem we face is that this form of power and intelligence is either ignored as a subject of study or is surrounded by all kinds of myths and mumbo jumbo fuckery. It would be an immense help to clear up the mystery, to name this feeling of power, to examine its roots, to define the kind of intelligence that leads to it, and to understand how it can be manufactured and maintained. So we all, like Nicholas Flamel, can become rich, Jack, and I'll say it till I'm dead, gods among men. Let us call this sensation mastery, the feeling that we have a greater command of reality, other people, and ourselves. And though we might only touch it for an hour, for others, masters of their field, it becomes their way of life. And at the root of this power is a simple process that leads to mastery, one that is accessible to all of us. That process can be illustrated in the following manner. Let us say we are learning the piano or entering a new job where we must acquire certain skills. We start out, we're outsiders. You know, we don't even know what we don't know. Uh, like an example for me is I'm getting I'm getting handier now. You know, I, I never was super handy. Um, you know, like back in the day, I was just like, like, why learn fucking carpentry when I can spend my time learning the language of making other people fall into the eternal sleep? And, you know, growing up, my dad pretty much just always used the, the great capitalist tradition of paying people smarter than him imaginary dollars to fix his shit. But I bought this fixer upper house and, you know, I'm learning the cost of fixing things up is X and paying someone sometimes is like 10 X. And so the world is opening up to me. You know, before I was like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to like, I'm not going to learn how to, you know, hang a door or how to, you know, hang cabinets or, or whatever. I'm not going to learn that like for real by fucking up my kitchen. But now I've done enough of it that I'm starting to see, oh, these are the building blocks. Okay. But when you first start out, you're completely unaware. You don't even know what you don't know. Mr. Green says, although we might enter these situations with excitement about what we can learn with our new skills, we quickly realize how much hard work there is ahead of us. The great danger is that we give into feelings of boredom and impatience. The process comes to a halt. But if we make it through that introductory outsider part, we move on to become practitioners. If, on the other hand, we manage our emotions and allow time to take its course, something remarkable begins to take shape. As we continue to observe and follow the lead of others, we gain clarity learning the rules and seeing how things work and fit together. We begin to see connections that were invisible to us before. We realize how a wall is built and understand the concept. And then we can use that knowledge to build a bench that we affix to a wall. Holy shit. And at a certain point, we move from student to practitioner. We start to try out our own ideas. We gain feedback in the process. You know, instead of just learning how others do it, we bring in our own style in individuality. And after years and years, we move on to mastery. As years go by and we remain faithful to the process, yet another leap takes place to mastery. You know, think of a UFC champion sparring. You know, they're just engaged in a, in a high stakes dance with complicated rules, but you know, they're not, they're not thinking about anything. They're just expressing themselves through their fighting. And that's the type of insight that happens with mastery. So where are we going in this goddamn series? Well, 
Mr. Green is about to unroll his dick like a fruit roll up and teach us the way. Mr. Green breaks down the learning process into three main steps. And so the whole the whole podcast series we're going to we're going to kind of walk through and he's building us through these steps. But then he goes a lot more in detail on each step for little helpful nuggets that we can take to once again add to our chariot of gold. So the first phase um, you know is basically the uh, the apprenticeship. And you know there are various levels of ability that you have, but you know at the basic level it's like we don't even know what the fuck we're doing. You know it's it's like basic things like if they kick your leg you check the kick you pick your leg up and you turn your shin into it and then you check the kick then you move to the creative active phase so that's the second phase he's going to walk us through but that's where you you know the building blocks and you realize that there's some strategy here but you're still kind of like kind of a, a rookie having to you know having to think through everything so you know you do three leg kicks and then your next kick is a head kick. You throw them off. Okay. Okay. And then the third phase of of this whole process that he's naming mastery when you, you know, when you become just a fucking god and you know everything about whatever subject you're trying to learn is the mastery phase. And so that's where you have complete skill. And I feel kind of weird giving this example, but fucking whatever. Um so I was so good at taekwondo. Um just just deal with it. it it's the best example i got okay i know i'm not like super cool i know i like you know can't sit on a couch I, I don't think i'm super awesome but this illustrates a good point so um you know he says when you get closer to mastery you end up seeing different layers that were were not obvious to begin with so um if we go back to those those examples that i talked about so when you're an apprentice you learn like the interplay between when you know throwing a leg kick okay somebody blocks it okay cool when you become more of a you know practitioner starting to kind of learn you learn that there could be some strategy here so you know you you look at their leg and then you kick them in the head okay you know that's one of the best ways to kick somebody hard as fuck in the head is to just look at the leg and fake a kick to the head but that's so obvious you know that's day one shit so what you end up having to do is, you know, you having to, you do multiple leg kicks, you know, get them thinking that you're going to kick their leg and then kick them in the head. But even that is obvious. So when you get to be really good, you know, it's almost like poker. You're analyzing your opponent in real time. You know, you're figuring out their idiosyncrasies and exploiting them. So, you know, sometimes when you when you got to be good enough, you would, you know, you'd be sparring an opponent and you'd you'd see oh every time they did x they do y so like every time they kick they'll drop their hands or you know every time they want to throw a hard punch they move their feet this certain way so then you can kind of you know when you see them move their feet that way you're like ha 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 and then you punch them in the face okay but what i used to do is uh, because, you know, I got to a level where, like, I was going against people who were so fucking good. And so, like, you can't just look at their leg and kick them in the head. They're like, bitch, that's junior varsity stuff. So I used to pretend like I had a bad habit. And, you know, I would actually I would actually teach them like a dog that I actually had this bad habit so that they are thinking, like, oh, my God, I know I'm going to beat this guy. This guy has a bad habit. And then surprise them because it's all a goddamn illusion. So, like an example is, let's say I, I really want to kick him in the in the head. Okay, well, I'm going to start out and I'm going to throw 
uh, leg kicks and I'm going to stare at their front leg, almost like I've got like a tick, like a problem, like, whoa, why, why is he looking so hard at my leg? And I'm going to kick him hard as shit a couple times. And, you know, if that if that person's good at reading you, they're going to be like, oh, shit. OK, every time he's about to do a leg kick, he like he looks at my leg longer than he should. Ah, that is his weakness. Got it. So then, you know, you keep those rules consistent. So maybe you do six, seven, eight leg kicks where you're just teaching this person. You're staring at their leg uh, until you're ready to kick them in the head. So then now you look so hard at their leg and like they've had seven or eight examples that you've got this bad habit. So they're pretty sure you fucking do. And then you kick them in the head and they're dead. And so you, you basically, you, you know, you, you effectively taught him your deception and he fell right into it. But um, that type of layer, that, that type of progression that happens as you get better, Mr. Green says, you know, in the third phase, our degree of knowledge and experience and focus is so deep that we can now see the whole picture with complete clarity. We have access to the heart of life, to human nature and natural phenomenon. And he says, this is why the artwork of masters touches us to our core. Because if you think about it, I actually didn't even kick this person this hypothetical person in the head with my techniques, it was more like me as a person just tricking him as a person. Because if I just tried to just be faster than him, it like it wouldn't have worked. I had to I had to teach him like a dog. And so Mr. Green says a master is a mix of the instinctive and the rational, the conscious and the unconscious, the human and the animal. Masters return to this childlike state, their work displaying degrees of spontaneity but of obviously much higher ability than a child and he says if we can reach mastery this intuitive power is at our command the fruit of working through the lengthier process and because the world prizes creativity and this ability to uncover new aspects of reality it brings us tremendous power so if you always fill out those BuzzFeed personality profiles and, you know, they suggest that you have the personality of that guy in Mulan who sniffed the doll, listen up. This power brings to those who possess it the kind of connection to reality and the ability to alter the course of the world that the mystics could only have dreamed of. Over the centuries, people have placed a wall around such mastery. They've called it genius and thought of it as inaccessible. But Mr. Green says that wall is imaginary. He's gonna teach us the secrets. The brain that we possess is the work of six million years of development, and more than anything else, this evolution of the brain was designed to lead us to mastery, the latent power within us all. Let's fucking go. So he moves in to telling a damn story about how hunter-gatherers were, were weak little pussies, but in the short span of one million years, they turned into beasts. And this happened because they fashioned their mind into the most powerful instrument known to nature. The great salvation for all of us is that we have, an, that we have inherited an instrument that is remarkably plastic. At any moment, we can choose to shift our relationship to time and work back to our radical deep past as a human. The environment we operate in may be different than a caveman, but the brain is essentially the same and its power to learn and adapt and master time is universal. Now he, he kind of says, you know, he's, he's laying out this awesome magic gift we all have and he, he kind of asks the question, well, why aren't there more masters then? And he says, certainly, 
in a practical sense, this is the most important question for us to answer. Um, so he, he, he covers Darwin a little bit. You know, go listen to the Genius Explained episode if you want a deeper dive on Darwin. Like, I'm going to give the, the just disgustingly horrible summary right now. So basically, Darwin was rich. He loved guns and bugs. Uh, he one time either did or threatened to kick somebody down the stairs uh, related to like a bug collecting dispute. And he changed the world with his theories about evolution. But he was kind of normal until he went on this like seven year voyage on this ship called the Beagle. And um, Mr. Green says, suddenly his passion for collecting found its perfect outlet. In South America, he could collect the most astounding array of specimens. He poured all his energy into this enterprise, accumulating so many specimens that a theory began to take shape in his mind. In the process, he had to deal with a tremendous amount of drudgery. For instance, eight years exclusively studying barnacles to establish his credibility as a biologist. Oh my God, that's the answer. If it was easy, everybody would do it. And Mr. Green says the basic elements of the story are repeated in the lives of all the great masters. In the past, only elites or those with an almost superhuman amount of energy and drive could pursue a career of their choice and master it. So if you remember the Genius Explained episode, think of George Stevenson. I mean, he just he's teaching himself how to read and write, working on trains and fucking college bitches at night. No, no offense. Um, today, though, we have access to information and knowledge that past masters could only dream about. It is time that the word genius became demystified and de-rarified. We are all closer than we think to such intelligence. And in this here fucking book, we're going to journey to the center of the earth and return as dinosaur kings. As T. Grizzly would say, bitches who used to ignore me now be like, why do we need a condom? But we'll never get there if we don't work. And so Mr. Green closes out this intro and says, don't give in to passivity. Before it's too late, you must find your way to your inclination, exploiting the incredible opportunities of an age that you've been born into. First, you must see your attempt at gaining mastery as something extremely necessary and positive. Second, you must convince yourself of the following. People get the mind and quality of brain that they deserve through their actions in life. So basically what that means is you know, your brain is so plastic that you are what you repeatedly do. So why not become a fucking savage? In many ways, the movement from one level of intelligence to another can be considered as a kind of ritual transformation. As you progress, old ideas and perspectives die off. As new powers are unleashed, you are initiated into higher levels of seeing the world. Think of mastery as a tool in guiding you through this transformation process. This book, this goddamn tome, is designed to lead you from the lowest levels to the highest help transform you from a sea slug to a semi-conscious person into death, the destroyer of worlds himself. And so from, from kind of like from an organizational perspective, he lays out the process of mastery. Then he moves into kind of like a strategy section on what we need to do, you know, weaving in stories of past and present masters throughout. It's super fucking long and complicated, so I took the liberty of pulling out the 80-20 for all you baboons, and it's time to fuck. Finally, you must not see this process as moving through levels of intelligence as merely linear. Your whole life 
is a kind of apprenticeship. The moment that you rest, thinking that you've attained the level you desire, a part of your mind enters decay. Section one, discover your calling. Now, um, he's going to learn us up on how to find your life's task. And you got to remember, this guy's a, like a really, really good author. He's kind of a kind of has a flair for the dramatic. And so we're just going to humor him, okay? Uh, because life's task is capitalized. He says the first is always inward. And he walks us through this great example, really good introduction of Leonardo da Vinci. He's on his deathbed. He's reflecting on his life. You know, he had no education. He was a bastard. He uh, went into went into nature. He'd always like look at the birds. Then he became a painter. But he didn't really want to do it the way that everyone else did it. He wanted to, you know, fuck shit up and make make something his own. He he made this giant, uh, giant cast bronze horse. Um, he he painted angels. He got obsessed with birds. Whatever. He was good, I guess. But um, Mr. Green says, reflecting this way, he would have clearly detected the workings of some hidden force lurking within him. It directed him away from other artists, convention, and toward the wildness of nature. Seen in this fashion, his path made perfect sense. This hidden force within him had led him to the full flowering of his ability. In his own words, written years before, Leonardo says, Just as a well-filled day brings blessed sleep, so a well-employed life brings a blessed death. And the keys to the keys to mastery, that's so he he does the little like introduction thing, then he says keys to mastery, which is like his pro tips on on how to get the most out of this chapter. Many great masters in history have confessed to experiencing some kind of force or voice or sense of destiny that has guided them forwards. For Napoleon, it was his star that he always felt was in ascendance when he made a right decision. For Goethe, he called it his demon, a kind of spirit that dwelled within him and compelled him to fulfill his destiny. Such feelings can be seen as purely mystical, beyond explanation, but Mr. Mr. Green says there's another way to explain them. All of us are born unique. This uniqueness is markedly genetic in our DNA. We are a one-time phenomenon in the universe. For each of us, this uniqueness first presents itself in childhood through certain inclinations. This primal uniqueness naturally wants to assert and express itself. With masters, it is so strong that it feels like something that has its own external reality. Let us state it in the following way. At your birth, a seed is planted, and that seed is your uniqueness. It wants to grow, transform itself, and flower to its full potential. What weakens this force, what makes you not feel it or even doubt its existence, is the degree to which you have succumbed to another force in life, social pressures to conform. So what he's basically saying is, uh, and I'm not sure I like 100% agree with this, but he's saying we got to find our, all caps, life's task. And um, I, I don't know, man. Like I feel like, yes... If you are lucky enough that you have this deep passion, then do it. But for me, you know, I had found my passion, but then I hurt my back. And so then like I had to give up all of those possible parallel universes where I did anything that, you know, required a normal fucking back. 
And so I just happened to, and we'll cover it on the podcast, but I happened to read this book called So Good They Can't Ignore You. And the thesis of this book was basically like, yeah, it's cool if you have a really good passion, then just like don't question it and just put this book down. But if you don't happen to have a passion or like maybe your passion is the fucking bachelor, um, passion can be grown. And the way that passion's grown is by like getting really, really good at something and he did this exhaustive study and interview of all these people who were really passionate about their careers. And it turns out a lot of them didn't like, weren't like 13 and thought that they were going to be forensic pathologists. They just kind of fell into it, got really good, and then the passion happened. So like Mr. Green's saying good stuff. And it, it really does make sense to realize who you are. I mean, there's definitely something there. Um, but it's kind of a delicate dance in my opinion. But hey, I'll give it to you. Good advice. Carrying on. Finally, you must see your career or vo- or vocational path as a journey with twists and turns rather than a straight line. You begin by choosing a field or position that roughly corresponds to your inclinations. This, this initial position offers you room to maneuver and important skills to learn. You know, you don't start with something too lofty. You need to make a living and establish some confidence. But once on this path you discover certain side routes that attract you while other aspects of the field leave you cold. Let's say that, you know, you're, I don't know, you're like some admin for the police department and, um, you know, you, you, you do like 10 different things for your job. One of them, you have to embalm the bodies and you don't like that at all. But another one, you got to go like, you know, do toxicology analysis. And you're like, this is so cool. Move towards the toxicology analysis. And it's kind of like me, like, I, you know, I got into sales and I was, you know, just like, I think I might be okay at sales. And then I realized that there's a lot of types of sales. You know, there's like super transactional sales, which is, you know, basically like somebody has a problem, you fix their problem and, you know, you don't really have a deep relationship. Um, and, you know, that type of sales getting better at the skill of sales, like asking good questions, being, you know, just better at selling is very correlated to that. Then there's the other type of sales, which is a lot more like relational. So um, you, you basically just have to like fucking pretend to be someone's friend for years until they buy your stuff. And so I, um, and, and most people actually don't fall into this, but like I find that I enjoy the transactional side more. It's kind of like, it's more of a game. It's more of a skill that I can learn. Um, I hate having to behave for like a whole year until somebody's ready to buy something. Like, God damn it. But he says, eventually you will hit upon a particular field, niche, or opportunity that suits you perfectly. You will recognize it because when you find it, it will spark that childlike sense of wonder and excitement. It will feel right. You will learn more quickly and more deeply. Your skill level will reach a point where you will be able to claim your independence from within the group and move out on your own. In a world with so much we can't control, this will bring your ultimate power. Now again, a little objection, like I'm 75% on board with this, but you know, there's that that quote from Thomas Edison that's some you know, something like most people miss opportunities because it comes in the form of overalls and is disguised as hard work. But I'm pretty sure the 80-20 here is just become a kusemono, lift weights, get rich and own a cow, and it'll all take care of itself. So if you don't know your passion right off the bat, just pick something that seems reasonable and just get after it. You know, this 
But this also means if you if you do have a calling, you know, buried deep in there, however it came about, nature or nurture, and you're ignoring it, fucking stop it. You know, if you've always wanted to be a male model deep into your heart, you saw Zoolander, you watched it a thousand times, you practiced your looks in the mirror, you've always felt like you're hotter than all the guys on the romance novels, it's your moral obligation to do male modeling. Now, Mr. Green gives us some advice on how to find it, how to find this life's task. And he says, um, look for traces in visceral reactions to something simple. You know, a desire to repeat an activity that you could never get tired of. A subject that stimulated an unusual degree of curiosity. Feelings of power attached to a particular action. So, like, for me... um. And I don't know what this says about me. It's probably not good, but whatever. Um, I like gambling a lot. And uh, growing up, you know, my dad and I, we, we, you know, we play like horse or whatever. Um, and we'd always bet like $5. And then we start playing pool and we bet on it. But I learned that if there was a possibility that I could make money from doing something, my attention span was limitless in practicing it. So I developed this, I don't want to call it a con game. I'm going to call it more of like an entrepreneurial venture. But um, on paper, it looks really difficult to stand behind the basket in a like a, a basketball hoop and uh, shoot the basket up and over and make it. But in actuality, it's like easier than shooting a three-pointer. So I went and I practiced so many times, standing behind the basket, just shooting it, shooting it, shooting it. And then I did this like three different times before my dad became wise to the to this technique. I told him, I was like, hey, dad, will you buy me a Game Boy game if I make this shot? And my dad's like, yeah, okay, kid, yeah. And then I made it. He's like, Jesus Christ, God damn it. Okay, that must be luck. And then I got him again, and then I got him one more time. And then he's like, have you been practicing this? I'm like, no. But like Mr. Green would say that type of a thing would tell me that, hey, I might be motivated by sales. Like, let me go make 100 cold calls or send out a bunch of emails, and then I get paid. Okay, cool. So look for those traces of, of visceral reactions to something, and that's a clue. And and he he brings up a uh, like more of a, a philosophy of how you could try to structure your life's task. So he says, um, occupy the perfect niche. So this is the Darwinian strategy. Um, basically, he cites some some neuroscientist guy named V.S. Ramachandran. He was actually super famous for his like phantom limb studies. But basically, um, as a child growing up in India in the 1950s, Mr. Ramachandran knew he was different. He loved to read about science. He loved shells, then got into like human anatomical abnormalities. He went to medical school, but he disliked the rote learning. And then he read a book about, about optical illusions. And so he started to start to conduct his own experiments, uh, some that actually even got stuck got published and so he was invited to study neuroscience at cambridge but he, he didn't like it he got hired in california and he found studying phantom limbs and he was home these experiments led to some exciting discoveries about the brain itself suddenly the feeling of restlessness not fitting in was gone studying anomalous neurological disorders would be a subject that he could devote the rest of his life to this was a niche that he had all to himself one that he could command for years to come that corresponded to his deepest inclement inclinations. So like, that's good advice. 
okay? You know, you figure out that you like building things, then you figure out that you love carpentry, but you hate all of other types of building things. Then you realize that you actually really just love refinishing wooden antiques and then you end up you know you're like the only person ever who refinishes viking furniture or something um so he's basically just saying you know it's like the the scott adams talent stack concept you know if you're the top five percent in four different disciplines you know it's a lot easier to carve out your own niche so that's basically what he's saying um the career world is like an ecosystem People compete for resources and survival. You are seduced into such fields because you see others are making a living. You spend so much time at these little political games that you have little time left over for true mastery. The game that you want to play, though, is different. Instead, you want to find a niche in the ecology that you can dominate. And that's what I'm trying to do here on this damn podcast. I would put forth that I'm the only book review podcast hosted by an actual baboon with magical powers and an entire dining room set made out of human skin. Now, Mr. Green says there's two ways to do this, and this being occupy this super badass niche. Um, The first is in the beginning, you choose a field that roughly corresponds to your interests. Then from within your chosen field, you look for those side paths. That's like V.S. Ramachandran, like, well, medical school is closer to my interest than accounting, but like most of this shit sucks, but I'm interested in optical illusions. Then you move that direction. He says, when it is possible, you make a move to a narrower field until you hit on that perpetual motion machine that causes you to be a wreck for more than four hours. Maybe he didn't say that exactly, but that's that's his tone. Um, the, the other way, though, is you master one field. You look for other subject or skills that you can conquer on your own time if necessary. Then you combine this added field or knowledge to the original one, perhaps creating a new field or at least making novel connections between them. So like, uh, I don't know, like let's say you're, a, you're an insanely hilarious comedian and you also love cooking. So you do like, and you're insanely good at cooking. So, you know, you now are able to just do a cooking show and nobody can touch you because, you know, you make Gordon Ramsay look like a bitch. Um, He says, in either direction, you have found a niche that is not particularly crowded with competitors. You have freedom to roam. You set your own agenda and command all the resources available in this niche. So that's all super good stuff. Um, You know, basically the whole the 80 20 on that, that whole first section is whether it's nature, whether it's nurture, whether you have this inborn passion or you grew it through getting really good at something, um, it really helps if you have massive passion and energy creation from your from your life's task. And uh, extra helps if you find a way to be like uncommon and interesting and, and hard to copy. Okay. I'm in, Mr. Green. Take me further. So, we found our life's task. Now what? Then, we submit to reality. The ideal apprenticeship. After your formal education, you enter the most critical phase in your life. A second, practical education known as the apprenticeship. Before it is too late, you must learn the lessons and follow the path established by the greatest masters, past and present. In the process, you will master the necessary skills 
discipline your mind and transform yourself into an independent thinker prepared for the creative challenges on the way to mastery. Now, back to Darwin, um, but shut up. Exposure equals composure. There's some lessons to be learned. So Darwin didn't really like school growing up. He liked hunting, scouring the countryside for rare breeds of beetles, collecting flowers. Um, you know, He could spend hours observing the behavior of birds and taking elaborate notes on their differences. But these hobbies did not add up to a career. And as he got older, he could sense his father's impatience. One day, his father even said, you care for nothing but shooting, dogs, and rat catching, and will disgrace yourself and this family. But about that time, Darwin met a professor named Henslow, who liked him and eventually wrote a recommendation letter for him to, for a position as an unpaid naturalist on the HMS Beagle, a boat, which would leave on a several year journey around the globe, surveying various coastlines. Charles was supposed to collect life and mineral specimens along the way and send them back to England for examination. His father was like, nah, bitch, you should not accept this. No, I'm gonna try to get you a I'm gonna try to get you a position in the clergy. But Darwin grew a pair of testicles and he accepted it. And it started out pretty rough. Uh, he was seasick for the, th the first three months. Um, all the sailors were like hardened men, and he was just this little baby boy. Um, they were always saying bad words around him. And I actually tried to find um, some sailor bad words from back in those days. But um, all I could really find is that the most offensive thing that a sailor could call somebody was a damned son of a bitch because it's, it's insulting and telling them that they're going to be damned in hell, but also um, being mean to their mom. So just so you know, um, but after like three months of emotional turmoil, the beagle arrived in Brazil and Darwin was completely mesmerized by all of the wildlife around him. He would have to expand his knowledge. Not only would he have to spend countless hours studying everything in sight on his walks, he'd have to take copious notes and find a way to organize all this information, catalog his specimens and send it back to England. It would be a Herculean task, but unlike schoolwork, it excited him. He got a little hard. As the journey progressed, Darwin noted some obvious changes in himself. He used to find almost any kind of work boring, but now he could labor all hours of the day. In fact, with so much to explore and learn, he hated to waste a single minute. He got really good at identifying birds and shit, blah, blah, blah. More importantly, his whole way of thinking had changed. He would observe something, read and write about it, then develop a theory after even more observation. The theories and observations feeding off each other. So we can see that Darwin is undergoing a metamorphosis in his apprenticeship. So if you guys know the story, you know he gets to the Galapagos Islands and he figures out evolution. Yay, Darwin. Um, he sees 26 new species. And then he makes like an, a remarkable discovery that the species differed from island to island, even though they were 50 miles apart. Um, and then suddenly, as if the four years of his voyage and all the observations had distilled in him a deeper way of thinking, a radical theory took shape in his mind. The ruthless struggle for survival, selection, and evolution. On the journey home, Darwin began developing his theory, so revolutionary in its implications. To prove his theory would now be his life's work. 
When his father saw him, he was shocked. Darwin was strapping, confident, and exuded big dick energy, almost the opposite look of the lost young man who had gone to sea years before. Now, um, he's gonna, Mr. Green's gonna talk about the keys to mastery of this apprenticeship section. In the stories of the greatest masters, past and present, we can inevitably detect a phase in their lives in which all of their future powers were in development like the chrysalis of a butterfly. This part of their lives, a largely self-directed apprenticeship that lasts some five to 10 years receives little attention because it does not contain stories of great achievements or discoveries. And often during this phase, the future master, he's just basically like a normal dude. So for me, you know, I haven't mastered anything yet, but I'd like to think that in, you know, 15 years, I'm going to look back. And um, when I, right after it hurt my back, I want to get good at sales. And so um, I made a bet with myself that if I listen to these like very good but incredibly boring sales tapes 11 times through um, i would buy myself a shotgun and then when i did listen to them 11 times through i was so frugal i was like tricked you bitch but um you know i was laying on my wood floor in the ghetto i mean sustained only on hope but i learned sales so i hope i would look back and say oh that was an interesting form of apprenticeship but um, okay, but we can study these masters who all had this apprenticeship phase and learn some valuable lessons. You know, uh, Mr. Green says he's looked at enough of these that we can figure out what an ideal apprenticeship looks like. And um, humans, so we are humans allegedly, have the longest dependency period of any animal. You know, we suck them titties or die until we're like 18. Um, at the end of the process, Somewhere between 18 and 25, we are then thrust into the cold, harsh work world to fend for ourselves. When we emerge from the youthful state of dependency, we are not really ready to handle the transition to a largely independent phase. We carry with us the habit of learning from teachers, which is largely unsuited for the practical, self-directed phase of life that comes next. We tend also to be somewhat socially naive about the political games people play. The apprenticeship, by its very nature, must be conducted by each individual in his or her own way. That is the phase in life in which we finally declare our independence and establish who we are. But, but for the second education in our lives, so critical to our future success, there are some powerful and essential lessons that we can all benefit from. These lessons transcend all fields because they are connected to human psychology and how the brain functions. The principle is simple and must be engraved deeply in your mind. The goal of an apprenticeship is not money, a good position, a title, a diploma, but rather the transformation of your mind and character. Uh, this has the simple consequence, meaning you must choose you must choose places to work and positions that offer the greatest possibility for learning. Practical knowledge is the ultimate commodity and is what we pay dividends for decades from now. Far more than the paltry increase in pay you might receive at some lucrative position that offers few learning opportunities. This means you'll be moving toward challenges that will toughen and improve you. So all that's basically saying is like when you look at all these masters, the vast, well, everybody 
had an apprenticeship phase where they were just a normal bro and they were just slurping in the universe's knowledge. Most of them though had like a, an actual formal apprenticeship phase where they were, they had, you know, someone they looked up to that taught them the way. And when we graduate school, you know, we think we're ready to go and, and get this prestigious job. But what he's actually saying is that we're playing the long game here. So if you have a goal, if you figured out your life's task, you know, let's say you want your life's task to be an author, okay? Well, you need to do things that move you towards that path. You know, if you go take a high-paying, cush job where you do no writing and you work for a magazine, but you just like fly around and, and you know, hang out with rock stars, um, unless you're doing a bunch of writing on the side, he would say that that is actually not in line with your life's task. Now, he talks about three phases of this apprenticeship and I'm gonna I'm gonna cover them but again the 80-20 is have one and then value learning more than short-term money and move towards what you need to do but we're gonna humor Mr. Green and he says um, there's three there's three essential steps in your apprenticeship each one overlapping the other the first is the passive mode so this is deep observation the second is skill acquisition the practice mode and then the third is experimentation, the active mode. And he, he just reminds us that keep in mind, an apprenticeship can come in many different forms. It can happen all at one place over several years or consist of several different positions in different places. A kind of compound apprenticeship involving many different skills. So I, I think that this is a good framework to just, just kind of have like, you know, once you've seen it once, you're a little bit better. Um, so just having this as a map is helpful. So let's say that you start out your apprenticeship. When you start, you enter deep observation. So just the passive mode. So when you enter a new career or new environment, you move into a world with its own rules, procedures, decades of history, power dynamics, conventions, and social norms. So your task upon entering this world is to observe and absorb its reality as deeply as possible. The greatest mistake you can make in the initial months of your apprenticeship is to imagine that you have to get attention, impress people, and prove yourself. So this kind of reminds me of how old school, before he broke his leg and got shitty, but old school Anderson Silva used to fight. You know, that first round, he might not even throw anything. He's just feeling out his opponent. You know, it's like he's installed malware into your fucking neck and he's just downloading your entire strategy. Eventually, it just clicks. He's like, got it. And he dismantled you like a Mr. Potato Head. But um, I feel like this is pretty interesting. It, Mr. Green says, any positive attention that you receive is deceptive. It is not based on your skills or anything real. So, like... That's, that's a good mindset to go into a new thing with, you know, what you, what you actually want to do is you, you want to learn it. Okay. So like your goal should not be to all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's like the, you know, it's like someone who's actually not that good at singing, but then has a hit song and now all of a sudden is famous. And then everyone realizes they suck, be better for them to have developed the skill and then have a hit song. And then they could, you know, do that, that shit like Cardi B because Mr. Green says, instead you want to acknowledge the reality and submit to it muting your colors and giving and keeping to the background as much as possible remaining passive and giving yourself space to observe you are looking to observe where all the rules you are looking to observe all the rules what are the power relationships you know 
These procedural and political rules may be dysfunctional or counterproductive, but your job is not to moralize about this or complain, but merely study them like an anthropologist. Now, one weird political thing that happened uh, back in the day when I was a financial advisor is, you know, the vast majority of the advisors, because once you're successful, I mean, you're basically just like making a shitload of money for doing no work. So the, there are all these old guys who wore suits, just had a bunch of money. Um, it didn't really work that hard. But there's this weird dominance culture in the bathroom where the old advisors would like loudly fart around the new guys, like right next to them, like you're pissing next to them in the urinal. And they just like fart so loud. So initially I mistook that and I was like, oh, this must be, this must be uh, just what we do. So then I farted really loud too. And then they just looked at me like I, like I was disgusting. Um, so, you know, you gotta, you gotta kind of like navigate through through some some political dynamics like that every task you're given no matter how menial offers opportunities to observe this world at work no detail about the people within is too trivial now mr green says understand there are several critical reasons why you must follow this step first knowing your environment inside and out will help you navigate it and avoid costly mistakes you're like a hunter second the ability to observe any unfamiliar environment will become a critical lifelong skill. So, you know, this is kind of hard and you know, it doesn't always line up with what, what you want to do. But what he's basically saying is when you first start any new thing, any apprenticeship, like let's say you, you know, you want to go join a martial arts class or you want to, you know, go do CrossFit, you know, just you come in and you're just, you're just gray. You know, you're, you don't, you don't try to stand out. You don't try to win the competitions. You're just learning. And it feels like, you know, you're, you're not being yourself, but he's saying, you know, it's, it's better to subjugate your ego and learn initially, and then you'll win in the long run. Because the second phase in your apprenticeship is skill acquisition. So this is the practice mode. And so at some point, as you progress through these initial months of observation, you will enter the most critical part of your apprenticeship, practicing towards the acquisition of skills. Every human activity, endeavor, or career path involves mastering skills, and each career path has a different mix. Some hard skills like archery or some, you know, like way more nebulous like managing a sales team. But regardless though, as much as possible, you want to reduce these skills to something simple and essential, the core of what you need to get good at, skills that can be practiced. So this is the 80-20 principle. And he goes in a, a good example of like where he's drawing from a lot of this is the actual formal apprenticeship system of the Middle Ages. So think of Middle Ages, you know, everybody's fucking dead because of the plague, but the people that are alive are like blacksmiths and you know, basically the issue that they were trying to solve is that, you know, these businesses, like let's say you ran, uh, you made swords for, for the, the village and, sur and the surrounding villages. Well, you know, these businesses were going to gr grow large enough that you can rely on your family members alone to staff the business. But like, it was really hard. You couldn't just hire somebody because, you know, it's not like you're hiring them to just, you know, walk around and be pretty. Like they need to make fucking really good swords that your name is behind. So it, you know, it costs so much to train people that that they needed some staying power. So basically, what the apprenticeship program uh, turned into was basically like 12 to 17 year old kid would go work with, you know, whatever trade for like seven years. They'd pass a, a master test and eventually become a journeyman 
who could then travel somewhere else practicing the craft or stay on and work with the master. So there's no book learning, no practice materials. Everything was learned hands-on. Um, Mr. Green says, if one added up the time that apprentices, that apprentices ended up working directly on materials in these years, it would amount to more than 10,000 hours. The natural mode of learning, largely based on the power of mirror neurons. So that's like uh, when you see someone get kicked in the balls and you're like, oh, those are your mirror neurons. Largely based on the power of mirror neurons come from watching and imitating others, then repeating the action over and over. Our brains are highly suited for this form of learning. So, you know, we learn a foreign language by actually speaking it as much as possible, not by reading books and absorbing theories. You know, the more we speak and practice, the better we become. And this is totally true. Um, I got so good at German, I was actually fluent and then kind of like sandbagged my way through college based on just being fluent at German. Um, but my teacher never gave homework, never really had tests. And uh, the only one, the only rule was we just had to speak in German the whole time. And uh, he was actually just like totally open to chaos. Shout out Herr Geisinger. But um, like I had become the enforcer. So anytime someone would speak English, I would just stand up and be like, kind English, which means no English. And, you know, somebody threw scissors across the German class. I choked one of my friends out because he hit me in the nuts. But I went to Germany as a foreign exchange student and they were like, how is your Deutsch so good? I'm like, well, well, we watch a lot of movies in class. So we, so we start out, we're just observing in this apprenticeship, but then we enter the practice phase. But this this right, this right next section, what I'm going to talk about, is what, what made this book worm its way into my mind as something that, that like I needed to fucking remember. So he says, once you take this far enough, you enter a cycle of accelerating returns in, you, in which the practice becomes easier and more interesting leading to the ability to practice for longer hours, which increase your skill level, which in turn makes practice even more interesting. And the part that I, that is incredibly important here is, you know, let's say that you want to become a master composer, okay? What he's saying is that you, and, and you get this apprenticeship thing. What he's saying is your goal should not be become a master composer. Your goal should be just stick out until you hit accelerating returns. So he says reaching this cycle is the goal you must set for yourself. And to get there, you must understand some basic principles about the skills themselves. Before we go into that, so growing up, I you know, I uh, moved to Indiana when I was in fifth grade and it was like a weird time, so I didn't know anybody. I think it was like like a month left until school, so like I, I moved in the summer and I didn't really know anyone. Um, and I had a unicycle. And I had tried to ride it and it was so freaking hard, but I just decided like, I'm going to learn how to ride a unicycle. So I, you know, for like 15 days straight, I tried and fell and tried and fell and tried and fell and tried and fell and got chafing and tried and fell and bleeding thighs and tried and fell. And then I did one rotation without falling. And I was like, oh, fuck. And then like three more days, I couldn't get it. And then I did two rotations and I'm like, oh my God. And then the next day I did like five rotations. And then the next day I like, went a quarter of a block and then the next day i got to where i was just like super good at unicycling and i became that weird fucking unicycle kid but i kind of just intuitively fucking happened upon this but the goal shouldn't be get incredibly good at unicycling the goal should be just just hold out until accelerating returns happen because once i got those couple turns 
Dude, I was obsessed. I was just dreaming about unicycling, which is so stupid, but hey, I liked it. And, uh, you know, I got to the point where I like that I had this limit, limitless motivation to get better and better and better um, because I stuck it out until I got there. He says the initial stages of learning a skill involve tedium, so it's boring. You must accept and embrace it. The pain and boredom we experience at this initial stage of learning toughens our mind. Just like physical exercise, you can even get a perverse kind of pleasure out of this pain, knowing the benefits that it will bring you. So like think think about, um, so it's like if, if you truly believe you can learn anything and you're going out there and you're, you know, you're failing for 15 days, you, you fall, I don't know, 700 times on the unicycle, that's actually fine. That's not like a sign that you're bad at unicycling. It's not a sign you're never going to figure it out. That's like, oh yeah, dude, I am suffering right now. I'm sucking so bad. Like, man, it is inevitable I'm going to figure this out. That's the way to think about it, Mr. Green would say. And the reason that this accelerating returns thing happens and is so powerful, when you first start, something happens neurologically to the brain that is important for, for us to understand. When you first start something, a large number of neurons in the frontal cortex are recruited and help you in the learning process. So frontal cortex, I don't know shit, but frontal cortex is like where you do your hard conscious thinking. It is stressful and hard. The frontal cortex even expands in size in this initial phase. But once something is repeated often enough, it becomes hardwired and automatic and the neural pathways for the skill are delegated to other parts of the brain. In the end, an entire network of neurons is developed to remember this single task. If we look at the frontal cortex of someone who has mastered a skill, it would be remarkably still as all of their brain activity is occurring in areas that are lower down and require much less conscious control. So basically what he's saying is that like physically in the parts of your brain that are working, you know, it starts in the conscious where you have to fucking think so hard. You're like, oh, God, you're fucking trying to balance on the unicycle. You're like, oh, God, and you cut your knee. But eventually, that skill builds and builds and builds, and it archives itself, and it moves to your subconscious. And then, you know, you're, you now have the subconscious ability to balance for one unicycle turn. And, and, and then you, you know, you move to, oh, I'm going to do two. And that's, again, that's in your frontal cortex. So you're thinking, you're thinking, you're thinking. But eventually, if you stick it out, I, I did two. That now gets, boom, that's archived. So now, unconsciously, so not even thinking about it, you can do two unicycle turns and then you're like i'm gonna go to the end of the block and that's hard as fuck and you're consciously thinking about it but eventually boom that's burned in and then you get to a point where you hit this accelerating returns because enough of the skill is burned in subconsciously that now you're free to just dance around like a fucking monkey and win once an action becomes automatic you now have the mental space to watch yourself as you practice. You must use this distance to take note of your weaknesses and flaws, to analyze yourself. Let's say you want a death metal scream. It helps to know that Alex Terrible exists, and with enough practice, the human voice can mimic the sound of a possessed lion. If you take this far enough, you will naturally enter the cycle of accelerating returns. As you learn and gain skills, you can begin to vary what you do, finding nuances that you can de develop in the work so that it becomes more interesting. 
As elements become more automatic, your mind is not exhausted by the efforts and you can practice harder, which in turn brings greater skill and more pleasure. So think about that. That isn't, that's not even like words. It's like you've physiologically gotten stronger and you're able to handle more of the skill. And he closes um, this second part of an apprenticeship, which, you know, again, this is the, the practicing phase where you're just, you're just holding out for accelerating returns. He closes this section saying, in other words, concentrated practice over time cannot fail to produce results. Fuck! And so now we're still in the apprenticeship phase, but now we let's say we've, we're really fucking good at unicycling. You know, we can unicycle everywhere, goddammit. But now we get to a point where we get to the experimentation phase, the active mode of the apprenticeship. He says, this is the shortest part of the process, but a critical component nonetheless. As you gain in skill and confidence, you must make the move to a more active mode of experimentation. This could mean taking on more responsibility, initiating a project of some sort, doing work that exposes you to the criticism of peers and the public. The point of this is to gauge your progress and whether there are still gaps in your knowledge. Most people wait too long to take this step, generally out of fear. Often, you must force yourself to initiate such actions before you think you are ready. But you will know when your apprenticeship is over by the feeling that you have nothing left to learn in this environment. It is time to declare your independence and move to another place to continue your apprenticeship. So let's say you're on the unicycling team, if that was a thing, and you know, you're, you and your buddies are good and you know, you ride around and it's just like, let's get good at unicycling, but you've got this, you've got this thing. You wonder, could I take a unicycle off of a jump? And that just burns in your mind. And you ask all your friends and your coach, you're like, no, 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 no. Unicycle, you see, it's a cardiovascular device. It is not for jumping. But then you take it on a trail. You jump from a rock to the trail. You fall, but you see a tiny flash that you might be able to take it off jumps. It's time to leave the unicycling team, go out on your own and spread your wings. And now before we close this uh, apprenticeship section and this first episode, He's going to jump into some practical strategies for completing the ideal apprenticeship. Um, we already talked about this, but we're going to do it again. Value learning over money. So in 1718, Benjamin Franklin's dad decided that his 12-year-old son was going to come and work for him in his candle-making business. Seven-year apprenticeship. Benjamin was like, fuck, I hate candles, dad. No. And he said he was going to run away if he couldn't pick where he apprenticed. To his father's surprise, Benjamin chose to work in an older brother's recently opened printing business. Such a business would mean harder work and the apprenticeship would last nine years. What young Benjamin had not told his father was that he was determined to become a writer. Most of the work in the shop would involve manual labor and operating machines, but occasionally he would be asked to proofread a text and there would always be new books around. Several years into the process, he discovered that some of his favorite writing came from English newspapers. He asked to be the one to oversee the printing of such articles, giving him the chance to study these texts in detail. Over the years, he managed to turn this into a most efficient apprenticeship for writing with the added benefit of having learned the printing business well. So the first practical tip of getting a ball or apprenticeship is you must value learning above all else. 
This will lead you to all the right choices. Next pro tip, keep expanding your horizons. There's this lady named Zora Neale Hurston, 1891. She's a black lady. So everybody's so mean to her and horrible and they should all die. But um, so she didn't really have any rights, but she wanted to be a, she wanted to be an, an author. And so, um, you know, she hardly had an education, hardly had the ability to read because, you know, I was like a rich person's thing. So she was a house cleaner, but she would occasionally like steal, steal like glances at books. She didn't steal books, but she found, um, she found Paradise Lost, this book in the trash, um, found a book of short stories. And then, you know, the Great Depression hit. Mr. Green says some from somewhere deep inside all of her past experiences her lengthy and multifaceted apprenticeship where she's cleaning fucking houses, she's reading books out of the trash, she's practicing on animal skins, it rose to the surface. She wrote this book, Jonah's Gourd Vine, a wildly successful novel. Zora's story reveals in its barest form the reality of the apprenticeship phase. No one is really going to help you or give you direction. In fact, the odds are against you. If you desire an apprenticeship, if you want to learn and set yourself up for mastery, you have to do it yourself and with great energy. When you enter this phase, you generally begin at the lowest position. Pro tip number two, be relentless in your pursuit of expansion, he says. Pro tip three, revert to a feeling of inferiority. So he gave some story about some dude who went in the jungle and learned, learned some really hard language from some hunter gatherers and ended up learning it from children. But like, whatever, this is the beginner's mind idea. You know, don't start with all your preconceived notions. Don't start assuming, you know, anything, even if you're being taught things that are different than what you learn them be a blank slate. You can always bring in your past experience later but your task is to absorb as much as possible. Drop all your preconceptions about an environment or field. Pro tip three, revert to a feeling of inferiority. Pro tip four, trust the process. So sometime in the last 300 years, I don't remember when, there's a guy named Rodriguez and he started flying these little Cessna planes just kind of for fun. And then, you know, because he just was like, whatever, he talked his way into a program where all of a sudden he's flying jets. And frankly, he fucking sucked. <laughs> like, oh, God damn, this is so different than my little propeller plane. Why am I doing this? But he became obsessed. He would do okay in the simulator, but he would panic when flying. He failed two flights and was on the bubble to being kicked out but he had never failed at anything before. It was a matter of pride for him, but he'd already been trying his hardest. So he tripled his time in the simulator. He habituated his mind. Whenever he had a chance to grab more time, he would take it. Slowly, day by day, he found a way to calm himself in the pilot seat and get a better handle on all the complex operations. He wanted nothing more in his life than to become a fighter pilot. And to do that, he had to keep becoming a Kusemono and beat the so-called golden boys. The guy's naturally great at flying. Uh, he's getting down to the end, but in the final weeks, he was to train on the supersonic T-38. He asked his new instructor, Wheels Wheeler. That's not his fucking name. Can you believe that? I'm, maybe that is his name. He, to work him to death, he had to succeed. Wheeler obliged him. 
He made Rodriguez repeat the same maneuvers 10 times more than the Golden Boys until he was physically sick. He honed in on all of Rodriguez's flying weaknesses and made him practice on the things he hated the most. He criticized him brutally. One day, however, as Rodriguez was flying the T-38, he had a strange and wonderful sensation. It seemed like he could feel the plane itself at the edge of his fingertips. In the end, he graduated third in his class. He killed three people, but it was legal, so it's totally cool. And he earned the nickname, the last American ace. What separates masters from others is often surprisingly simple. Whenever we learn a skill, we frequently reach a point of frustration. What we are learning seems beyond our capabilities and we unconsciously quit on ourselves before we actually give up. When it comes to mastering a skill, time is the magic ingredient. Have faith in the process, the boredom will go away, the frustration will melt away. Pro tip four is just trust the fucking process. Pro tip five is move towards resistance and pain. Now, um, he gave some examples and shit, but like the idea here is if you are bad at something that like if you're bad at something and ultimately fixing it would make you way better at the in the long run, you need to move towards that and fix it. So like, for an example, I was really good at kicking, but I was horrible at punching. So I never threw punches. But then I realized like I suck at punching. So I didn't throw a kick for a year and I sucked ass for like six months until I learned boxing. Same thing. You know, I'm still like mostly done, but still learning how to shoot with both eyes open because in the long run, that's the better way. But in the short run, I had, I fucking sucked ass. Like I went back to, you know, barely not being able to hit the target. I'm like, oh my God, there's a hundred worlds. I don't know which site to look at, but move towards loss. And eventually I'll be just as good with both eyes open. I will markedly surpass what I could have done before if I only had one eye open. Um, I've done this poorly a couple times, like jujitsu. Yeah, I, uh, I always just tried to win and I never learned anything um, in pool. I... I got to be like 10 out of 10 at cut shots, so like hard angle shots, but I was still like a 2 out of 10 at bank shots, and I was horrible. So I should have moved towards those bank shots. Mr. Green says, by nature, we humans shrink away from anything that seems possibly painful or overtly difficult. We bring this to practice. Once we grow adept at some aspect of this skill, generally one that comes more easily to us, we prefer to practice this over and over. But Pro tip number five is it sucks, but short term, you got to fucking move towards failure. Um, now, the the last pro tip is basically just the concept of, of advance through iterated trial and error. And he gives this whole story about this hacker guy. But like the summary is, you know, if you're going out in the world, like like for me, I am I am my goal is to go out and book meetings. OK, so I don't have a preconceived notion. I'm just. I'm going to do an email campaign and see what works. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to say, hey, this worked, this didn't work. Let's do more of what works. Then I'm going to do more of what works. I'm going to do more of what works. I'm going to do more of what works until, you know, six months from now, my approach is going to be completely different than what I thought if I sat down and I came up with like this, this immaculate strategy, but move towards what works. Keep learning by trial and error. And uh, Mr. Green says, the model goes like this. 
You want to learn as many skills as possible, following the direction that that circumstances lead you, but only if they are related to your deepest interests. Like a hacker, you value the process of self-discovery and making things that are of the highest quality. You're not sure where this will lead you, but you're taking full advantage of the openness of information. You move by trial and error. You are the conductor of this wide-ranging apprenticeship within the loose constraints of your personal interests. And he makes he makes sure to to point out like you know, he's not saying you're not you're not just wandering around like some chick that has a neck tattoo, five baby daddies, scared of commitment and is looking for that next hit of that sweet sweet crystal. On a, at a certain point, you will settle on something. And at that point, all your skills, interests and destiny will align with the planet and it will be time to become a hunter of long pig. Though it may come in many forms, there are no shortcuts or ways to bypass the apprenticeship phase. It is the nature of the human brain to require such lengthy exposure to a field that allows for complex skills to become deeply embedded and frees the mind up for real creativity. Now we're going to close this episode with a quote. It's like chopping down a huge tree of immense girth. You don't accomplish it with one swing of your axe. If you keep chopping away at it though and do not let up, whether it wants to or not, it will suddenly topple down. But if the woodcutter stopped after one or two strokes of his axe and asked Mr. Chang, why does this tree not fall? And after three or four more strokes, asked Mr. Lee, why does this tree not fall? He would never succeed in felling the tree. It is no different for someone who is practicing the way. Holy shit. Now in the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast covering mastery, Mr. Green is going to walk us through some mentor dynamics, how to get the most out of working with a mentor, some pro tips, and then ultimately, just like the heavens will open up and he will teach us all about the process of mastery. But if you want that knowledge, if you want that gold, you're going to have to tune in next time. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's my pretties is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, The Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.